Hi, I'm Ann Barker. And I'm Liz James. And you're listening to The Cracked Cup. Okay, I now understand what you were asking for yesterday. You were saying, let's not just start with the sermon, let's talk with some chat about the sermon. And so... Oh, that's not what I was saying at all, but whatever. Well, they, no, but they, they, this is a good idea. It doesn't matter okay. what you're saying. It matters I understand what, how this works. It matters how I interpreted what you were saying. Exactly. You you are the creative genius. Please lead us on, Your Majesty. You're a minister, and how a minister works is you come up with a theological point, you make it, and then I hear whatever the hell I want in what you said, and then I say, my minister told me. And after five years of sharing that idea, you will think it's yours. <laughs> well, it kind of is, because that's not what you said at all. <laughs> I hear you. Trust me, you don't want credit for my ideas. <laughs> Very true. All right. I can so, make my own funny, you know. <laughs> that's why we pay you the big bucks. For the listener, we do not pay Anne anything. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you can't fire me, because I'm not employed. <laughs> this is what freedom of the pulpit means. It means pulpit in which you are not paid anything. <laughs> and here we have built our own pulpit, so nobody else gets a vote. <laughs> Okay, you are heckling my announcements. I'm trying to explain for I'm the listener sorry. about the phone. You don't look sorry. Shaking my head no. So for the listeners, we are trying out a different format because so normally we talk for a couple hours and then I spend eight hours trying to make us sound good. So what we are doing now is we are experimenting with a 15, 20 minute thing that's scripted that I didn't have to put in any editing work on. And then we're going to talk about it afterwards, just like we did with the hysterical women sermon, because people really liked that. So... You loved hearing about hysterical adventures, and so we thought you would love hearing about grammar. (laughs) (laughs) Because those are the same thing, hysterical women and grammar. That's the same thing. Yeah, I don't know. You got pretty hysterical about irregardless. All right. Without further ado, or with a medium amount of ado, here's the (laughs) sermony part. My dad used to offer helpful scientific corrections for my mother's facts. She'd be mid-story. She was a great storyteller. She'd be building the momentum of this narrative and the main character was running for her life and their mean dinosaur would jump out and my dad would interject with the fun fact that actually T-Rex didn't live in the Jurassic period as she had stated, but in the late Cretaceous one. Whenever he did this, my mom would huff in exasperation and she would say, quit being the knowledgeable guru. And then my dad would clench up slightly because It's pronounced guru. But you can't actually say in response to quit being the knowledgeable guru, it's pronounced guru without ending up divorced. My mom taught me that gurus are just out to impress people with how much they know. She taught me that their corrections are a way to make themselves look smart, irregardless of how it makes anyone else feel. I grew up in a family where correcting one another was a blood sport. And the ultimate example of that was the dreaded irregardless. Whenever I hear the word irregardless, it, my head nearly pops off because it was drilled into me over and over that irregardless is not a word. And anyone who says irregardless is stupid. Regardless is a word. It means without regard, like to not value or give weight to someone or something. For my entire school education, elementary through university, drilled into me, irregardless is not a word. When you put the IR, the prefix ear, in front of a word, it negates it. So irregardless technically means without, without regard. So basically it means regard. And so I learned it because I didn't want to look foolish and I didn't want those big red marks on my papers and trained in the blood sport of snooty grammar, I took it very seriously. Funny how that worked out because in 2020, due to centuries of common usage, Merriam-Webster defended the use of irregardless officially in their dictionary and their definition of irregardless, regardless. It was used so frequently to mean regardless that now it does. Irregardless now officially means regardless. Apparently the prefix ear is being used as an amplifier rather than a negator. Ironic 
how after centuries of judgmental grammarians argued that irregardless just means regard, irregardless has proven itself to be valid, and the act of judging other people's grammar has turned out to be the failure of regard. Before I talk about correcting language, I have a question for you. What is correct English? I mean, it isn't like math, where it's pretty evident that 4 times 5 just equals 20. Grammar rules aren't like the rules of physics or even biology. They're not laws of the world. They're customs of specific tribes. You might call it original English. Not to get guru-y on you, but if you called it original English, you would be dead wrong. All of the different styles of English we speak now come from ancestors, and maybe there is some original English defined at some arbitrary point on that timeline, but it is not the language that we speak today. Proper English is not the trunk of the tree. It's just one of the branches. None of the Englishes being spoken today are original. English in India or Kenya doesn't just have a different accent. It has subtly different rules. To say nothing of people who have English as their second language, you can learn to tell from the grammar errors what someone's first language is. Chinese people will often use sentences that are grammatically correct, but with very unusual but technically proper word choices. People whose first language is Arabic will put a question word in front of a sentence, like, why you are correcting my language. Spanish people will do the reverse. They'll say the statement and then they'll add no at the end to make it a question like, you are correcting my English, no? Like that. People who speak African-American vernacular English, which would be their native language usually, will play with the verb to be, sometimes dropping it as in she a pain in the neck or adding it as in she been lecturing me all day about grammar. So it's not just culture too that you can learn about. My sister who was shamed brutally for her dyslexia as a child and who still struggles to sometimes show up in written word spaces without fear, she can recognize another dyslexic by the specific spelling errors that they make. As a child, I remember this exercise where I was struggling to read words in a mirror and my sister walked in and not only could she read them, she didn't even realize they were reversed. All words were that hard for her. I have some friends who are pronoun ninjas, deftly weaving through they as a singular pronoun in ways that are, by the way, technically correct, but really challenging for me when I try to do them. And when someone hears those friends and their patterns of speech, maybe someone feeling vulnerable or unsure, that listener knows that the speaker is someone who cared enough about different genders being comfortable that they put in the time to learn to use pronouns in that way. How could that type of English possibly not be right? What does make one type of English the right one? Power. It's power. The Oxford English Dictionary is right because the Oxford people were the power clan at the time and they made it so. And that power has continued to flow along those lines. People still learn proper English today, not because it's actually different from other dialects, certainly not because it's better, but because it is the dialect that the people controlling power have used to signal to one another that they are from the same tribe. It's the language that my friend upon moving to Canada struggled to learn as his fourth language. Until he had, he and I spoke in French. My French sounds like it's been through a blender, and you could see him rearranging the words in his mind to figure out what the heck I had said, and he never complained once. He did ask me to correct his English, though. Even after he was easy to understand, he kept asking, I kept correcting, he kept working, because the bar for the master's degree program he was aiming for was that high. Flawless, native-sounding English was the goal. Serviceable, understandable English? counted for nothing. Oh, also his perfect French and Kirundi, his solid Swahili, and his bits of a variety of tribal languages, those all counted for nothing as well, even though much of what he was studying happened in countries where those are the main language and he could read the original texts. He needed to speak proper English. He needed to spend years of his life polishing it until it was perfect to even get a seat at the table. And that is what I mean by one group making their native tongue the key to power. When I say, your accent is so hard to understand to a bank teller from India, I am saying it to them in a North American accent that they had to learn to understand, which by the way, the teller never complains about because not only is understanding me her problem, not mine, my understanding her is her problem, not mine. Of course, asking 
to repeat themselves because you aren't good with accents is fine. But to correct people when you already understand them? Think about that for a second. Not only has the supremacy of your brand of English meant that they've put in all the work and you've put in none, but you're increasing that work for no good reason. You are saying, I understood you fine, but I want you to keep struggling with this language until I must put in zero effort at all. Like grammar and spelling are some kind of higher virtues. I don't know much about virtues, but I do know that any virtue with such a long list of victims is one that I want no part of. Change can be hard. We think we're losing something when something uncomfortable and familiar feels interrupted. After decades of successful pronoun use, suddenly we're wrong, got it all mixed up, and people keep correcting us. And even worse, they're correcting us publicly. And nobody likes to be wrong, especially in public. But maybe the way we're looking at this is wrong. Maybe we've become possessive about our pronouns when we just don't need to. Maybe we're gaining something instead of losing when language expands. I have this thing that happens when I meet a couple to plan their wedding and I ask them, is anyone changing their name, their last name as a part of this ceremony? In Alberta, either person in the couple can take the other person's last name or a hyphenated version of both names together. So for instance, and I'm gendering this on purpose, a woman can take the man's last name or a man can take the woman's last name or either one can combine the two names in either order with a hyphen or either one can keep the name they started with, any combination thereof. And I suppose technically they could even swap last names. That would be fun. When I meet with a queer couple, almost always the conversation goes like this. What are our options? And so I tell them and they say, oh, that's fun. We'll have to think about what that we might like to do. When I meet with a straight couple, almost always when I ask the question, the groom looks at the bride and he waits for her to answer. And then, irregardless of what the woman has replied, I look at the groom and ask, and you, will you be changing your name? And he looks at me puzzled because that's not a thing, right? Unless they were going the hyphenated route. The grooms have rarely, if ever, even considered that they could take the bride's last name. Now, queer couples have already figured out that this is a thing. That's the rules, though not necessarily conceived that way, and they're technically equal. They go both ways. They, as a singular pronoun, has technically been a thing pretty much forever as well. We just weren't familiar with it. We're not losing any knowledge or any pronouns when we learn how to use it in that way. We're gaining a more compassionate culture and we're receiving the precious gift of someone's trust. We can debate the value of the Oxford comma, yes, or the double space following the period, not anymore, until the semicolons come home. Or we can take a step back from the rigorous defense of grammar as we learned it in that particular moment in time and choose the relationships instead. When first shared with me what it felt like to have their language corrected, I felt terrible. I love words so much. I love language. I didn't mean to be a guru. I don't think my dad meant to be a guru as I was growing up either. Because watching him as an adult sharing fun facts at family gatherings, I think he just loves science and wants to share that love. I don't think he's trying to look smart, especially not at the expense of making someone else feel stupid. I think he genuinely believes people want to know that much about the mating habits of the South American Setsi fly. But it's about effect, not intention, isn't it? And so for a while, I muscled through not correcting people. I let the broken English stand, or what I thought was the broken English. People before grammar, I would tell myself. Except that's not at all. It's not a trade-off. English that is expanding its walls isn't broken English, that's growing English. Languages are meant to grow. An English where the accents and the variations in grammar elude to the story of the speaker is a vastly more wonderful language. I don't want my friend to learn to say, would you like me to make supper? Because I make supper, yes? Is better. It's, not a, it's a statement just 
about today's supper, but it's also about all the meals preceding it. It alludes to a childhood surrounded by simmering pots of beans and rice and brilliant strands of red chilies hanging from the roof of the kitchen. My sister's misspelled words aren't a fault. They're the story of a childhood spent wrestling defiantly against the letters that wriggled and would not say still, and she fought and fought, and she won entry into the world of the written word. And a slight scar from her dyslexia, the slight scar it has left on her written word is a badge of honor. Pronouns that feel strange, or grammar patterns associated with poverty or specific subcultures, making all of these things welcome not only makes the conversation more inclusive, it makes it a better conversation. It laces it with all kinds of different histories and identities. And when we speak, our words carry not only their meanings, but also our stories. Why would we mistake those stories for stains and try to scrub them away? Because we do get to choose. The rules of language follow us, not the other way around. We do things differently, regardless of what it used to be like, and the official rules, they catch up. Language is not meant to be tidy, with the rules stacked neatly against each other like petals in a tight bud. It's meant to be messy, with cracks and uncertainty and things constantly changing shape. That's not language falling apart. That's language blooming. I love that metaphor about language blooming. I think it just opens things up. Yeah, me too. It's really pretty. <laughs> Thank you for giving us that. I really always love metaphors about things aren't falling apart. This is like a holy sacred version of it all going to hell because that makes me look good. Right? It's the poetic hell. It's the poetic hell. I would rather reframe it than fix it, so you'll hear a lot of blooming and cracking from me. <laughs> Poetic hell is a much more accessible hell. <laughs> Although, you know, th that was something I just learned recently, that folks who are not neurotypical have trouble <laughs> with metaphors. Oh. So when we talk in all this, you know how some some of my Sunday <laughs> services are like six poems and 82 metaphors crammed in between them. There are people that's not at all accessible for just like this grammar topic, right? That, um, yeah, I have to interrupt with a story. It just happened and it was very funny. Background for people. John is not someone who is diagnosed with any specific neuroatypicality. But his brain works differently. And the way I would describe it is extreme engineer. So there's components of being on that the spectrum. That says it all. Very literal. Extreme engineer is a <laughs> right. category that we, I think many of us have met and can understand. So last night we're making sandwiches and John took my pickles. And John. so I was taking my pickles back. Well, he did, I didn't claim the pickles. They were sitting there. I was planning on he eating them. He should have known. I had not, yeah, he should have known. So I'm pulling the pickles off the sandwich and he goes... But that part is the mustard seeds or something like this. And I said, I know how to recognize a mustard seed, John. I'm a theologian. <laughs> and he looked at me confused because he doesn't know his Bible super well. And I said, the parable of the mustard seed, how it's the tiniest seed and you plant it in the ground. And from it, there grows a giant tree and the birds of the forest. And he goes, what? And he just looks abject horror. He goes, Mustard plants aren't trees. <laughs> and I said, no, it's the tiniest seed. It makes the largest of all the plants. <laughs> he goes, no, it doesn't. So he wasn't even worried about the metaphor. He's just right with the mustard seeds are not trees. He says, mustard plants are only two and a half feet tall. And so I'm looking up the Bible passage, right? I'm like, look, it says in the Bible. This is a bad metaphor. And he, he just, the horror. And I said, well, how am I supposed to know? I've never seen a mustard plant. And he says... Saskatchewan grows a non-trivial portion of the world's mustard. Like, they're everywhere. How have you never seen a mustard plant? And so I'm like, oh, well, okay. Oh, man, you're really going to be upset if you hear about the loaves and fishes. And he's like, that's fine. That's clearly like a pie-in-the-sky science fiction story. But they're spreading misinformation about mustard agriculture, and this is unacceptable. It's just unacceptable. All right, so I'm looking in the show notes what we're supposed to say instead of talking about the mustard seeds. Yeah, I was supposed to work the word irregardless into a that sentence. That is not a word. Me, except for I don't actually use that word. You know, it was fun because we both worked irregardless <laughs> into it then in ways that are technically correct now. And I realized that so much of that comes from my childhood. Yeah. So, um, so my mom was super bright 
she's been passed away for some years now, but she was super bright and super capable. And she had a grade eight education. Her mom ran a cafe and gave her the option of quitting school and coming to work with her in the cafe. And as my mom tells it, what kid wouldn't choose (laughs) quitting school and going to work? And so you couldn't tell from her written or spoken language that she was not highly educated. She had perfect grammar. She had excellent punctuation and spelling, (laughs) unlike me with my addiction to ellipses. But it was so important to her. She was spending her whole life trying to prove that she was intelligent. Mm. And nobody knew that she only had a grade eight education, like only the immediate family. Nobody knew. And there were no cues that would hint at that. Mm. Like you couldn't hang out with her and think, I bet there's a story here. But she just worked so hard to always be well-spoken and well-written in that technically perfect kind of way. It's like the opposite of me. (laughs) No, I mean it. So I grew up to parents who were both university educated and I learned how to speak. And also I had an IQ, a high IQ, and they put you in this special class where they told you you were super, super smart. And they also implied that intelligence was the life skill that was going to be most important and the best way to measure a human being. I have found that IQ is useful for certain things. They were wrong. (laughs) But it's not the be all and end all definition of worth that I was led to believe. But I came from that high intelligence reading thorough background. And then I... Right, with your sister under the <laughs> yes, desk. exactly. And then I ended up in, uh, in foster care in a series of very blue-collar families. And so I had this sort of bilinguality, and mm-hmm. I feel much more emotionally resonant with the foster care plain-spoken blue-collar way of being. Mm-hmm. So I intentionally mm-hmm. learned the opposite How do I speak in words that everybody can understand that don't make me seem like an academic? That's really important to me, too. Like Mm -hmm. in ministry, we describe ourselves as a faith tradition as having a learned clergy and that um, that we can do a good academic sermon. And I love academics like going to university is so fun for me. I love a good fight around a conference table. I love a good argument Um, because that's how I learn what I know. Because I don't know everything until I'm in a fight with somebody who knows See, that's something. That's how I, I learn what I don't know. That's why I don't like it. Right. <laughs> right. So you think it shows it that you're dumber, and I think it makes me smarter. So, and it's all the same thing, right? I don't think it shows that I'm dumber. I think it's a conversation about how dumb people who speak like me are, but I don't think that's true. Right? I don't shy For away sure. from a genuine Absolutely. weakness, but I don't like being told lies about what's wrong with me. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. So this this learned clergy thing, I just don't want to get hung up thinking I think that's the most important thing. <laughs> so, is it's always been really important to me to not speak in fifteen dollar mm-hmm. words, right? To just that you never know who's in the mm-hmm. room, you never know what they're going through, and for me, it's not so much about education or language. Even those things are both important, but it's also about what are you going through in your life? It's not uncommon that somebody shows up to a church service when someone in their life has recently died. And when they show up, they don't need a fancy dissertation with footnotes and technobabble, right? They just don't need that. They need words they can hear that will sink in, that will just hold them in that moment. Oh, you should interrupt me because I keep talking. <laughs> well, I was enjoying what you were saying. <laughs> there are times when you want $15 words. You want your doctor to know that yeah, you don't want him to words. say, we're just going to get in there and we're going to poke around. I don't know. It looks like a flu. There's a bump in there. It's a bad bump. Not the good <laughs> bump. Right. I have a pandemic. I have a pandemic. Get it out of me. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Note, pandemics are not funny. Uh, everything's um, funny. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you want, you know, you want your doctor to get it right. You want your engineer to measure correctly. You want your engineer to care about the difference between a 10-foot tall tree and a 2-foot tall mustard plant. That's their exactly, job. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Plant the mustard plant close to the house, not the giant oak Bingo. tree. <laughs> That's going to tip and crack the foundation. But you want, you want to be kind mm-hmm. and... 
I think you want to be kind. I don't I kind of wonder why people don't want to be <laughs> kind sometimes. Like it seems that you do not wish to be kind. I think people don't wish to be kind when they feel under attack. Like I think about this specifically mm. in language. So when I see patterns where we shove people out because they don't have our tribal markers of language, I think it's because we are afraid that this space is not going to be for us. Like people always mm criticize oh we should be being more of a lighthouse instead of a clubhouse and i always feel like while i'm excited about some lighthouse things it is not a moral failing to want a clubhouse and i think sometimes people become unkind because they're trying to keep their clubhouse safe from people who might hurt them hmm. i don't think they're mean people but i you and i are both naive and as the mfc told you you need to develop a theology <laughs> of evil because there is evil in the world <laughs> And that just has four letters, that word. <laughs> and came home from the, from, I think it was the MFC, one of the credentialing. It was, no, it was the regional okay. subcommittee. And came home. It's the first From this step place word. that has a lot of syllables in its name. And they said. It's a judgy place that doesn't I exist I loved anymore. the RFCC. They were fabulous. But yeah, anyhow. Well, they, so they said, um, so they said to her, this is good. This is good. This is good. And then the last piece of feedback is because evil does exist in the world. Shut we up. We are going to need to develop some way of acknowledging or dealing with that fact. I have a pretty good sense of evil. <laughs> now that you Thank spent you some very time much. in parish ministry, is that the... <laughs> Or hanging out with you, criticizing my lack of evil knowledge. That's true. I have a strong theology of evil. <laughs> Did you see the guy in the group who said... I'm so excited to have discovered Unitarian Universalism, but I've looked through the principles and I'm not sure I can agree with all of them. Mm -hmm. The inherent worth and dignity of every person is a problem for me because of evil. So his question was, can you be a Unitarian if you can't agree with all of the seven principles? And I, mm -hmm. of course, answered as an authority on Unitarian Universalism and then thought, I'm not really speaking for everyone. Like, do you think you can be a Unitarian if you don't agree with all seven? Okay, first of all, all Unitarians think they can speak for all Unitarians, and they're wrong. The number one criteria. And it's, you know, that's a Unitarian characteristic, unlike a Universalist characteristic, which says all humans are precious and have worth and dignity. Mm -hmm. And the reason a person struggles with the inherent worth and dignity of every person is that some persons are being rotten. Monsters. It's usually we jump right to, like, Hitler in the story where we say, so Hitler, does Hitler have inherent worth and dignity? But what and, we really mean is my neighbor who keeps criticizing my rhododendrons right. and lets his cat pee on my lawn. Right. right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care about his worth and dignity either. I think it's a challenge to us. I think it's a challenge to see beyond behavior. But you are not, you are not answering the question that I yes. asked. Yes, my you question... can be a Unitarian. Are you kidding? No Unitarian agrees with all the other Unitarians. <laughs> The Unitarian so, Universalists are more tempered. <laughs> Just for background for people, it was originally two separate things, Unitarians and Universalists, and they merged. And the Unitarians are the more, I would say, okay, you sum up who is the Unitarians no, and who is no, the No, no, this is not the point of this conversation. Okay. I'm going to transition us brilliantly back to words. Are you ready? <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So Unitarians have seven principles that are not a creed. Mm -hmm. So a creed is the thing you say as a statement of faith that you believe. It's like a test. We say that we are non-creedal, so there is no test of belief. But we have these seven principles, which are things that we generally believe we have in common. But it is not a test because <laughs> you don't have to believe the seven principles. You have to be a good and decent human being. And basically the principles are a list of Ways to be a good and decent <laughs> human being. Don't be a jerk. Care about other people. We're all connected. People matter. Can I tell you a creed story? Oh, you finished. Yeah, but let me let me make the link okay. just so that okay. I can okay. demonstrate. You know. Okay, my but once you get us back on track, I'm gonna pull us right you off can track pull, again because yes, I want to tell you a creed story. Okay, I will make just sit comfortably in my learnedness. <laughs> I will just sit comfortably, comfortably in my, in my learnedness. learnedness. I, I, I knew I was okay. <laughs> so there isn't a thing you have to believe. But we care about these principles. They matter to us. Mm -hmm. But we don't force you to believe them because we believe in autonomy and difference and uniqueness. Just like language <laughs> perfectionism, which is a thing that we get wrapped up in believing, just like that creedal idea that we're all the same, that we all believe one thing. And we get this idea that there is one right way to do the words and one right way to do the punctuation. Yeah. 
one right way to do the language. And it's just one culture's right way in one moment in time. I'm torn now because I want to tell the Creed story, but I also Tell the Creed story. Just, just, it's okay because I'm going to sit here in my learnedness. Okay, okay. So we were talking about like the histories of different songs and someone asked me about Amazing Grace and I learned it from my mom who my family doesn't seem overly Christian. <laughs> so we sang it all the time when I was a kid. So I went to my mom and I was like, where did you learn this Amazing Grace song that you taught me? And she goes, I learned it at church. And I said, you, you went to you church? Went to church? <laughs> and she goes, yes, I went to Anglican church. And I said, really? You were I, said, I don't know this fact. Did you recite the Apostles' Creed? And she goes, what? <laughs> I said, the Apostles' Creed. You know, like, we believe in one God, the Father. That's about as far as I can get in the Apostles' Creed. I don't know it. And she goes, oh, yeah. No, we said that. But I was very upfront. I said to them, I don't believe any of this hocus pokey. I am just here for the choir. <laughs> and I said, they let you stay in church after you've called the Apostles' Creed hocus pokey? And she says, well, yes, dear. I have a very nice voice. <laughs> I love how your mom changes words. Me too. I love it. <laughs> like the knowledgeable guru. I have this this habit. I think because of this obnoxious learnedness thing. I have this habit of mispronouncing words on purpose. So my mom tells this story about um when she was a girl, she like gobbled up books. She just loved to read. And she would see this word. M-I-S-L-E-D. And every time she saw it, she heard in her mind, missled. Uh-huh. And you know how when you don't know what a word is, it just takes on a meaning that fits the context. So you come to sort of understand it. But if somebody said define this word, you can't. So yeah. missled was a word in her brain vocabulary. She never used it because she didn't really own it. But she kind of understood how it was used in the stories. And it was years later that somebody was reading something aloud that had that word in it that she must have been reading along with or something. Right. Where she's like, it's misled. Oh, your poor mom, because she doesn't want to mispronounce things. But she didn't, like, I don't know that she'd ever said it out loud. So oh, poor her. Now, I have a tendency to say missled. <laughs> so it's like I think you have missled me Liz <laughs> this is not real and people think I don't know better <laughs> right well and they know they shouldn't correct you because you made a big speech <laughs> that's been kind of a gateway to understanding what it's like to not fit in or to be uh, outside of the clubhouse hmm. I've inherited it from my mom and you think missled is bad Try being a teenager in a moment of passion and saying, so, do you have a condom? <laughs> <laughs> My stepson David came back from university and he goes, I can't believe you sent me out in the world thinking it was girled cheese. <laughs> <laughs> because it was cooked by girls in my family there's daughters and when when nobody could make supper the girls would make girls cheese right <laughs> so we have built into our culture that it's okay to do funny things with language and the underlying message is it's okay to do funny things as long as you know the right thing when i first was started telling the guruing story I was doing it in writing. And so I had to figure out a way to show the mispronunciation. So I would do a G apostrophe R-U. And so then I started saying guru instead of garu, which my mother would say garu. And so I was talking to someone about this. I said, blah, 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 stop grooming me because that's now a verb in our family. Right. And David goes, don't you mean garu? Right. <laughs> we corrected you with Wait, the wrong word. <laughs> are you correcting me because I have mispronounced this word incorrectly? That is a mispronunciation. <laughs> so when we were doing the sermon in the list of topics, you had this great story about Quebec City, but it didn't fit in the sermon. Oh, yeah. So can you tell it now? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, and I think it was 2001, a whole bunch of people descended on Quebec City to protest some of the trade agreements many 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 thousands of people and in canada it's important to be aware this is a distinct culture that people love and care about and as the english majority we don't want to tromp all over it right because quebec's first language is french so they talked to us ahead of time about when you are in quebec city please use all the french you have whatever you have 
use it because we're trying to demonstrate respect. They'll probably answer you in English, but we want to demonstrate respect. And so I got lost from my affinity group at one point and I'm wandering about and I need to ask directions. <laughs> so my French is awful, but I have some. <laughs> so I go <laughs> up to the guy and I'm like, bonjour, je cherche rue de la blah, blah. And he's, and he responds, and I'm like trying to figure out what he's saying. And he's trying to figure out what I'm saying, which is very common. When I speak French to people, you, they stare at me for a while and puzzle. rearrange the yeah. words in their mind. Try to make sense. And we go back and forth a couple of times. And then he goes, he narrows his eyes at me and he goes, Anglophone? Which means English. And I said, uh, we? And he, which means yes. And he goes, oh, thank God, me too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then we had a conversation about So you were both the... trying to bravely be your best <laughs> yeah. French speaking selves and, and neither of you were any good at it. And we were both so bad that we couldn't tell how bad the other person was. So this was Aww. very funny. But the reason I think about it now is when I was in seminary and I was experiencing that feeling of everyone here speaks like a highly educated person with degrees. And I mean, you have to have a degree to get into seminary. And I don't like it. It doesn't feel like me. I Mm. want there to be room in seminary and room in our pews for people who talk how I talk. But I would speak the language you're supposed to speak for several years. And then eventually when I was no longer trying to pass, right? <laughs> meaning like pass my classes and become a minister. <laughs> I also didn't have to pass in that other way. Right. And so I started talking how I wanted to talk. And person after person came up to me and said, me too. Like mm. I've been speaking academic ease because that is our shared language. And I realized that we've just all agreed to speak this certain language that is the cultural thing that we're holding up. But that's not the true story. We speak all kinds of different languages. And as soon as one person starts being more honest about their language, it frees up other people to do the same thing. Do you know that Kathy corrects my stuff all the time? So like (laughs) part of the reason that I did this stuff is Kathy's like, I need you to have some resources I can link people to when I'm trying to explain why we're not correcting each other's spelling and grammar. And so we made all of these rules and laid them out. And one of them was this. And I sent it to her because it's her group and said how do you feel about these rules and she sent it back with like your periods are inconsistent and blah blah blah, all these different things and i texted back are you correcting my grammar and she texts back no i am correcting your punctuation I you know, <laughs> when you first told me that story, it made me think about how on the website at the bottom of every page, it says, and, and you know, gratitude to Anne who reads yeah. all of the things. That used to be my job. <laughs> when, you, when you put things, I can't keep up now with the volume of the communication. But on the website, when I read the new pages, it's like, uh, you have misspelled this. And that's the American spelling, but the rest are all Canadian spellings. And you have periods at the end of every sentence except this one. Because it's kind of a professional thing oh on the website i definitely want to be corrected okay but do you want to know my secret unitarian sin yes (laughs) when i'm doing one of your secret unitarian sins (laughs) i'm claiming there's just the one when i'm doing um a post that i want to go far on social media that i know that the algorithm really waits whether someone comments quickly right Mm -hmm. so if people are reading it and commenting quickly it'll push it out to a bunch of people and then there can be this tumble effect so if I don't have an interesting question or something where I genuinely have a conversation I want to start, I will often leave an error in there <laughs> because I know that that will generate four comments immediately. Telling somebody will correct it. Somebody will correct the correcting because then, they're a good rule follower in the system. We don't correct people. Oh my God, I have to stop doing that now because Kathy's going to kill me. She's going to be like, you've been doing that on purpose. <laughs> Oh, time for a bonus for Kathy. It's not always on purpose. <laughs> so I'm I'm holding this idea you have that that you said a minute ago about when people make corrections, it's not always um, insensitive or mean or uh, mm-hmm. or nasty. Sometimes it's because they love the language and they think they're helping. Yeah, right? they want to be helpful. They want they think you want to know. Sometimes you want to know. And I'm just wondering if we're not talking about consent again. Oh, yeah. Right? That, like, sometimes when people come to me as a minister with a concern, I say, what is it that you're hoping for here? Would you like to talk about solutions? Or did you come here to be heard? Or is there something else I can do? Oh, like, 
when I say there's an app for that and then you kick me and then I say, oh, how do you feel about that? <laughs> that is an example. That is an example. Um, kicking is not consentful. <laughs> she doesn't do it on Zoom. She doesn't really kick me. <laughs> uh, it has to be me that says that, not you. She doesn't really kick me. There is a very mean-spirited nature, not so much in the UU Hysterical Society, but no. in the broader internet. There's There tends to be a mean-spirited nature. Um, my my kid's dad um, calls it, now I've got you, you yeah. which is where you wait for somebody to make a mistake and then you jump on them. Yeah. And I feel like we have pent-up frustrations that instead of dealing with them in our own lives, we wait for somebody else to make a mistake and we jump on them. And I would bet that a whole pile of people who are out there correcting people's grammar and spelling and punctuation are people who have been corrected themselves. Yeah. You know? It's an act of self-violence too. Like, violence is a strong word, but when I was first getting on online culture, there's an XKCD comic where there's a person on the computer and someone comes up behind them and says, are you coming to bed? And the person goes, no, not yet. And the person goes, why? Someone is wrong on the internet. <laughs> Uh-oh, you will never sleep again. <laughs> right. And I really took to heart early on that when something is wrong, it's the whole thing about the best way to kill the grass is to plant potatoes, right? Mm -hmm. That you want to build the thing that is the thing you wish were there rather than criticize the thing that is the thing you think is a problem. Right, because criticizing the grass just makes it laugh at you. Right. And so I think <laughs> whenever someone is waiting to correct, I think, I'm so sorry you don't have a garden of your own. Right. I want to say to those people, go to bed, get a good night's sleep, wake up and think what is the wonderful thing you'd like to see on the internet and pay attention to that. Right. So I think it comes out of a kind of an emptiness sometimes. That's back to that story about feed what you want to grow and starve what you don't, right? Yeah. We've, we're all learning on the internet, don't feed the trolls. Mm -hmm. um, and except when we don't. <laughs> <laughs> except when we just get too mad and we want to play, now I've got you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to give the impression that we think that everybody who makes a correction is mean or a jerk. But those of us who correct without thinking need to think about what is the purpose of our correction in this moment, yeah. because it might not be the most important thing somebody needs. <laughs> they might need to feel welcome or they might need to have their story heard and you're changing the subject by making it about the language. Wait, are we saying changing the subject is a bad thing because I'm not comfortable with that? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you you have full permission to change the subject. Speaking of which, I believe that we have clarified enough <laughs> on this topic and we have Excellent. made our point. I look at the document and it says, Prof told you that you had an abundance of comments. That's, er, no, not comments. <laughs> <laughs> the Prof had an abundance of comments. I had an abundance of commas. <laughs> That's the last thing on our list we haven't touched on. Tell that story. Okay. So um, the lead in that's not on your notes is that when I was a kid, I used to love to write poetry mm. and it used to make me crazy mad when people would grade my poetry because <laughs> poetry is in my universe, not gradable. It is art <laughs> and it is the outpouring of my soul. And you can't put a mark on my, like a grade on my soul. That is, you can definitely put a mark on my soul. You can't put a grade on my soul. That's none of your business. So, okay. So I had this the, totally unrelated, but you'll see the tie-in. Okay. I had this political science professor who assigned a book review, five page book review to all of us. And um, I did really well on that book review. And when he's handing them back, you know how they do them, make an example of someone in the class. And he says, and Anne's paper has restored my faith in the writing ability of students. And I oh. used this beautiful <laughs> metaphor and carried it through the paper, but not overdone it. And blah, blah, did the blah, other blah, ones blah. beat you up after? No, because, you know, I was way older than them and they didn't care about me anyway. <laughs> so... The next paper, I'm now pretty full of myself oh, yeah. <laughs> because I have restored his faith in the writing ability of students. Oh, now you can grade poetry if you're going to say this, it's that good. This is a very long research paper that we are handing in and I get it back and there is no statement about my exorbitantly brilliant writing ability. <laughs> I look at the thing 
And it has a million little red circles in it. And one comment on the front page that says, I see you have an, had an abundance of commas that you must have felt you needed to use up all in one paper. I went to seminary, my preaching prof said, you are going to need to add more pauses. <laughs> so perhaps, or you had all of my commas. I had all of your commas. This is the point of both my commas and my ellipses, <laughs> is that when I write, I'm writing for it to be read or mm -hmm. for it to be read out loud. Mm -hmm. And so in my brain, I am putting the commas where I need you to take a breath. You can't tell me when to breathe. You may invite me and to And I breathe. am putting the ellipses in where I want you to give a dramatic pause. My sermons <laughs> have many small triple dots in them. <laughs> this is the pausing moment because, come on, people, less words is sometimes better. The air is sometimes better. You cannot misspell the quiet. You don't have to tell me. I have pigeon rats in all of my sermons. Right? Can't so this is them. like the poetry. Well, okay, we'll go there in a minute. So this is like the poetry thought is that how can you grade my pauses? How can oh. you grade my breathing? How can you criticize? My use of commas is intentional. You were detailed. creating sacred space and he mistook that for a grammar error. In my political studies paper. <laughs> perhaps perhaps my research paper on something about just war just didn't need dramatic pauses in his mind. <laughs> Everything you write needs dramatic pauses, Anne. <laughs> he is no longer a professor. Let's just leave it at that. Did you tell me, kill tell him? the people. Did you kill him? <laughs> no, he went on to another job. Okay, okay. Where he does not hold the tender hearts of, <laughs> of political of science and in his mind. It's not a cardiac surgeon. It, political studies is the same thing as religion. Anyway, hmm, I will not argue that point. Okay, good. Tell the people about the pigeon rats. Oh yeah, so I had the opposite problem. Not enough pausing, as one might imagine, and my preaching <laughs> professor says you've got to slow down. I just down. about spit my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> you're saying you've got to slow down. I need to tell you a story and then I'm going to go on. Well, because yeah. he told me it could only be five minutes and this is how you get the most words into the five minutes. It's very hard to get all of the words into five minutes. I know. Minutes. That's why we need a whole podcast to talk about the sermon. <laughs> so he gets my script and he's looking over, like he's, he would say, do this and then he would show you and then he would have you imitate him right away. Like he wasn't messing around. You nice. People really improved. And, uh, and he pulls out the script and he's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> the script has pigeon rat written. There was a Simpsons episode where someone made a pigeon rat and I found it funny in high school. So that what is phase, a pigeon rat. It's a pigeon sewn together with a rat. This isn't important. <laughs> it's just, it's, it was a running joke. I'm just trying to understand. It the was language. a running joke, which makes me laugh and smile, which is something you want. So, okay. So every time I need a instead of if i wanted to say and now we want to take this moment together in sacred space to connect with our deepest ambitions <laughs> to pause it to pause and breathe very i would say erin now we want to take this moment and then in the script it would say pigeon rat in sacred space pigeon rat to connect with our largest ambitions so that i could get the right amount of pause so i would go and now we take this moment pigeon rat to connect with sacred space and da 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 da, da. <laughs> <laughs> what is this and i'm like that's how you pause is you say pigeon rat in your head and he goes no for two reasons one you will accidentally say pigeon rat at someone's funeral and what are you going to do with that and two the point of the pause is to give your listener a moment but it is also to make it a conversation <laughs> right can i make a special request yes can you say pigeon rat at my funeral <laughs> I have room for that. I thought you were doing my funeral. We can't both do each other's funerals. Yeah, that's going to be true. Remember, we agreed you're doing we my funeral. We could pre-record them. <laughs> I will put it in my emergency contact thing on my phone right now. It says, if you bury me with any usable organs, I will come back to haunt you forever. And then I'll also put, also, here's the link to my funeral. That's not going to creep anyone out. <laughs> I'm Liz James. I'm Ann Barker. And we are so glad that you could join us. OK, 
Okay, first things first. If you like the ceremony thing that we did in this podcast, you might be interested to know that it and the one from the Hysterical Women episode are both available in video format and they are just the perfect length to use as a Sunday service. It's part of a set of resources we made for worship teams to use over the summer if they want. There's a link in the show notes. People should use them by donation ideally, but we are very flexible about that part. It's mostly that both Anne and I have planned worship services for years and we know how hard it is and we want to get these things into people's hands so they can have a well-deserved couple of weeks off. A special thank you to the UU Funding Panel, whose grant to our parent company, Mirth and Dignity, is what made this podcast possible. And a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters, whose ongoing support is officially, as of this month, the thing that is making it possible for us to continue this now that our grant funding has finished. You guys know who you are, and you know that we could not do this without you. You can learn more about becoming a Patreon and access to the secret sticker collection at patreon.com slash mirthanddignity, link in the show notes. If you'd like a different way to support what we are doing, we would also love a nice review or a nice rating, and especially if people share our work with friends or congregational newsletters or wherever else it might be useful. If you're curious about the group we keep referring to, you can find it by searching UU Hysterical Society on Facebook, link in the show notes. It's different from our main website, which is uuhystericalsociety.com, where you can find all kinds of fun things like the worship resources I mentioned and fun merchandise and a mailing list and the most hilarious bylaws you've ever read. You're welcome to use any of our materials, including our videos at a worship service or whatever your other creative endeavors ideally with attribution you don't have to ask for permission but we do love to hear from people using our stuff because having that information helps us get grants and also gives us a happy warm feeling in our hearts our materials are licensed under the truth will not hold still license which we invented which means that if you need to change our wording to suit your context or our evolving understanding of language as we grow please go ahead and do that with our blessing we would love to hear from you. Whether you have a question or a comment or a comment masquerading as a question, there is a comment form on uuhystericalsociety.com that is the easiest way to reach us. The Cracked Cup is a Mirth and Dignity production written by Liz James and Reverend Ann Barker and edited by Liz James. Music for The Cracked Cup is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Production is done by the brilliant and talented Anne Wendyko. And audio interference is provided by Simba the Cat. And we are so grateful that you could join us.